All right, everybody. It's about time for us to get started tonight. Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. We're going to begin in verse 13 of chapter 3. And we mostly finished chapter 3, but I wanted to back up a couple of verses um, and cover this one more time with some extra scripture tacked onto it. Because um, we didn't finish the chapter, and I don't want to just jump around. I think we ended up at the last verse of the chapter. I don't want to start there. So we'll back up a little bit and get this context. So 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 13. I want to tell you now before I forget, there are books uh, for the class to take uh, related to 2 Corinthians. You can get them out of the box here. Um, there's 15 of them, so it's not exactly one per person. But if everyone who's a couple just got one, it would, it would work out, um, I, I think, for everybody. So if you want a book that has this material that we're studying... Uh, you can get it right there to my right. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 13. And even now, this is not all the context, but I can summarize at least the catch-up here. Um, Paul is talking about the old law versus the new law. And the reason he's doing it is because these particular false teachers who have been attacking him are doing so because they hold to the idea that you must keep at least some of the old law, that the new law alone is not sufficient, that you must hold over some things of the uh, old law of Moses. And so Paul is in the middle of that, and he's talking about how the old law had its purpose, and it had its own set, its own kind of glory, but the new law is more glorious and more radiant and more vibrant in what it does and what it can do, which the old law cannot do. So in the middle of all that, he's comparing it to like the sun and the moon, and how the moon has a glorious radiance at night, but it's nothing compared to the radiance of the sun and the glory of the sun, and how the moon requires the sun's radiance to have any light at all. Uh, and so the old law has its radiance, it has its glory, but it gets its glory as a reflection of the glory that was to come, which is the new law of Moses. So in the middle of all that, he's talking about Moses and how Moses, who delivered that old law to the people, gave the people kind of a um, uh, an un, uh, unbeknownst to them tell that the thing that they were holding on to, that old law, was never supposed to be this permanent fixture in their lives. It was always supposed to be a temporary measure until the coming of the new law. So start there with me, 2 Corinthians 3.13. Not like Moses who put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. So Paul does something here which Moses did not write about, which the Israelites and rabbis and scholars and people and everyone who just had the Old Testament and just had the record of Exodus and Deuteronomy and so forth, um, that they didn't have any understanding of. They just had just the historical reference that Moses wrote. In fact, if you want to put your ribbon or your thumb or whatever here, and jump all the way back to Exodus 34. I'm going to read that text to you in just a second. But all they have, as it relates to Moses and the veil and all that, is just what Moses writes almost incidentally, just as this matter-of-fact thing. He doesn't tell you, here's why this is like this, or anything like that. I don't think even Moses was given that information. He was just inspired to write what he wrote, and that was it. But Paul takes that and he says, let me put that into a New Testament context. Moses had this veil on his face. He did that so that, what he says here, the children of Israel could not watch the glory diminish. They could not watch that which represents the old law fade into nothingness, which itself is symbolic of the law itself. The old law was glorious when it first came down from Sinai, but then faded in its glory until it was no more. That's the point of the veil that Moses is wearing. But you wouldn't know that if you just read the text. Go back to Exodus 34. And read with me, starting in verse 27 through the end of the chapter. Exodus 34, 27. The Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for after the tenor of these words I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. And he was there, Moses was, with the Lord forty days and forty nights, and did neither drink nor eat 
eat bread or drink water. And he wrote upon the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in Moses' hand, and when he came down from the mountain, that Moses didn't know that the skin of his face was shining while he talked with him. And you think, you'd think he would catch on, like peripheral vision, if nothing else. You'd think you'd, you'd, you'd notice it, but no. It was a purely supernatural, divine radiance that was pouring out of his the pores of his face. So he didn't even realize that while he was talking with God that he was radiating. Verse 30. When Moses, sorry, when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face was shining, and they were afraid to come near him. And Moses had to call them over, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them in commandment all that God had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. Till Moses had done speaking with them, until he was done telling them all these things, he put a veil over his face. Once he realized, once he saw that the people were afraid and, and, and recoiling at this, the sight of this glow from his face, he put a veil on and he kept that veil on until he finished saying everything that he was going to say as it pertained to the covenant that he brought down from the mountaintop. 34. But when Moses went to speak to the Lord, he took the veil off until he came out. And then he came out and spoke to the children of Israel that which he was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, and Moses put a veil on his face again until he went in to speak with God. So back and forth as he went, he would veil himself talking to the people. He would unveil himself when speaking to God. And while that veil was on, his face was radiating. And that's all you get. Then you come to Paul in 2 Corinthians. And what we learn here is not just that Moses' face was radiating, but that, that and this makes sense when you think about it, obviously that would be the case, but Moses doesn't say it, that that radiance eventually went away. Like You'd think, like there's, there's, you don't read any record of anybody else who first is meeting Moses, like in the book of Numbers, as they're you know wandering in the wilderness and they encounter you know various people in other places. Nobody's like, holy cow, there's a guy whose face is glowing. Of course it stopped glowing. But in the process of it going from glowing to not glowing, he wore this veil so that the transition would be kept from them. But th that, that whole idea is not told to you in the Pentateuch. It's only when you get to Paul's writing. And he does it only to make this application that that glow that was coming out of Moses' face represented the glory of the old law, a glory which faded over time, as did the old law itself. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 14. But their minds were blinded. They did not understand everything I just said. For until this day, the writing of 2 Corinthians, there remains that same veil still untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. A veil which has been done away in Christ. So you had in the time of Moses, Moses deliberately putting on and taking off this veil over his face. So that when it was removed, he was in the presence of God. And when he was covered, he was in the presence of the people. But now you have this deliberately putting on the veil, not over their face, but over their hearts and over their minds, putting it on despite the fact that God has said it should be taken away. Now you have this difference you had in the Pentateuch. You have this tug of war between man and God, stubborn man and a God who has made a change that stubborn people don't want to accept. Their minds are blinded, and they take that veil, and they keep it whenever they read the Old Testament. They read it as if this is the end-all, be-all of God's commands to us. And it was never supposed to be that. It was, always, it was always supposed to be the, the, the um, driver to get you to the Christ. But they read it as the end and the beginning of all that God has said to us. So they cover their eyes with that veil when they read the Old Testament. A veil which Christ did away with. Fifteen. Even unto this day when Moses is read, when you go into the synagogues and you listen to the rabbi read from 
Genesis or Deuteronomy or or First Samuel. That's all. That's all Moses. Even though he didn't write First Samuel, that's all Moses. The, all the Old Testament. When Moses is read, they keep that veil on their heart, refusing to accept that this is no longer what is in vogue. This is no longer what is the law of God. Sixteen. Nevertheless, when that heart that is currently veiled is unveiled, when that heart turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away. Whenever an honest heart turns to Christ and follows Christ, not Moses, and Christ for salvation, not Moses for you know, one, a one-year subscription to God not blowing you up, which is what the Day of Atonement was, when you actually turn to Christ and you get your sins taken away, well, you see the Old Testament put in its proper context. When you turn to Christ, you look at the Old Testament as what its point was, which is just to put perspective, to, to teach, to show you the character of God, to uh, point you to, to point out all of your sins, to point you to the Savior who would come and who would deliver a new covenant to, take, to actually take those sins away. But if you don't have that, if you don't turn to the Lord, you keep that veil on, you'll stay ignorant, you'll stay blind, and you'll die that way too. But when you turn to the Lord, the veil's taken away. Verse 17. Now the Lord is that, my Bible says, capital S Spirit. Does your Bible have a capital there? Yes. It's not supposed to be. Because uh, we started later in the chapter, but earlier in this chapter, Paul is talking about the letter and the Spirit. How the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's the old law of Moses, which points out your sins that are going to condemn you. And that's all it can do. You sin, and you say, Old Testament, I've sinned, what do I do? And the Old Testament would just say, I told you not to do that. You're doomed now, because I can't take away your sins. I can just point them out. I can tell you how many ways you've sinned, but I can't tell you who, how to get rid of them. I can point you to the Savior, but I can't save you. So the Old Testament kills, but the New Testament gives life, because it is through it that your sins can be taken away, through obedience to it via the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So the letter kills the spirit, little s, the, the law of the spirit, the, the word of Christ in the New Testament form gives life. That's the way he uses the word here in 317. The Lord is that New Testament in the metaphorical illustration he's using. Christ is not literally the pages of the New Testament. What he's saying in the metaphor is you have the Old Testament which veils the hearts of these non-believers. Christ takes that veil away. He's not the letter. He's the spirit that gives life. The Lord is that spirit. And where that Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There is freedom. There is a removal of your sins and a set freeness of your iniquities. Verse 18. But we all, with open face beholding, as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Remember Moses would uncover the veil when he would go stand before God. In fact, your Bible will later say that Moses spoke to God, talked to him face to face, right? Well, how can you do that? Because John says no man has seen God at any time. Well, no man has seen God the Father at any time, but the second person of God, he's all over the Old Testament. He's the one the Old Testament is pointing to, and he's all over the Old Testament, and people regularly saw him and interacted with him. Moses was face to face with him. Joshua talked to him before the battle of Jericho. Isaiah saw him on his throne in Isaiah 6. Over and over, people see God, and they're seeing Jesus. And Jesus sometimes will even specifically say, yeah, that was me when Isaiah was getting his commission. So Moses would reveal his face and go face to face with God. Okay, but then when he came back from the mountain, he had to veil his face because the radiance of the glory of seeing God was not for the people. They couldn't have that. They couldn't understand that. It had implications they didn't get. 
Certainly no random Israelite could go up on Sinai and stand where Moses stood. They'd be struck dead immediately. You can't just approach God. You can't just walk up to God and expect God to talk to you directly. No. In the Old Testament, God has to use an intermediary. God has to use a prophet or a Moses or somebody like that. But now we have Christ. And through Christ, he's not just an intermediary. He's an introducer too. Christ is the one who lets us approach God and approach the throne of God with boldness, Hebrews 4.16. So now we can approach God like Moses did face to face. We can see him with an open face beholding, like looking as close as you would look in a mirror, which in our modern context, that doesn't make much sense. But you got to remember, they didn't have... You know, they had, they had finely polished, you know, uh, glass and they had, you know, uh, water mirrors that they were reflecting mirrors. They would look at reflecting pools. But, you know, a finely polished mirror like we have, they didn't have back then. So if you could find a really good mirror or something that was mirror-like, that was a big deal because you could see a perfect reflection of yourself. So that's why it's used here. Crystal clarity is what he means by it. So we can have this open face. We can have this close seeing of God like we were looking crystal clear in a mirror and we can see the glory of the Lord unfiltered, unimpeded uh, by anything else. And we, in so doing, are changed into the same image from little glory to big glory, from moon glory to sun glory, from the, the diminished glory of the old law to the full radiant glory of the new law. And we have that through the Spirit of the Lord. That's what the new law offers. No chapter break. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, seeing as we have this ministry, the whole point of all of that was not just to tell you, as a matter of fact, why the New Testament is good and the Old Testament is not as good. The point was for Paul to defend his preaching of the new law against these false teachers who were saying, well, you have to keep some of the old law, though. you have to hold on to some of that, you have to bind some of that too. And Paul says, let me tell you why that's not the case. That's my ministry, Paul says. My ministry is preaching the new law of Christ. So, seeing as we have that ministry, as we've received mercy to preach that ministry, we, my Bible says, faint not. We don't give up. No matter how much you persecute us, no matter how much you pressure us, no matter how much all the things he's about to write about, we will not give up. Mine says faint not. What does yours say? Do not lose heart. We don't lose heart, which is what happens before you give up, right? Nobody, nobody feels the adrenaline halfway through the race, feels the wind at their back, and knows they can do it, and then says, all right, I'm going to tap out. No, you only give up when you feel the burning in your side and your thighs are on fire and you just can't go two more steps without falling over and throwing up. That's when you say, I can't do it, I give up. You lose heart just before you give up. You mentally say, I can't do it, then you stop doing it. But Paul says, we will not give up. We will not stop doing it. We will keep running the race. In fact, literally the phrase means to quit a task because of weariness. It's not just changing your mind. No, this is... You wanted to do it, but you just couldn't get up and do it enough anymore. He says, we're not going to get to that point. Verse 2. But we have... Wait. Is that, yeah, verse 2. But we have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, not handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Really big, long, wordy verse here. And what he's doing is he's basically summarizing what preaching is. In contrast to these false teachers who call themselves preachers, these so-called gospel preachers, these Judaizing uh, pushers of the law of Moses running down Paul saying he's not a real preacher, he's not a real apostle, don't listen to him. Paul says, let me tell you about my job and how it contrasts with their job. 
He says, we renounce the hidden things of dishonesty. If I say it, I'll say it openly. It won't be a secret. We don't have to close the... I mean, these curtains are closed. But metaphorically, we don't have to close the curtains and lock the doors. Like some religions have their doors locked, their windows are, are shut down where you can't see in there. And the only way you're even allowed into their worship service is if you're already a member. And if you can go as a visitor and you can only participate in part of the activities and then you have to leave... And then you have to walk up to a curtain and do a secret handshake and say magic words before they let you behind the curtain where the real action is. That's real stuff that happens in religions in the name of Jesus. But that is not Christianity. Christianity is out in the open. We don't practice hidden things with dishonesty. We don't walk in craftiness. So we have the method of his ministry. It's open. We have the motive of his ministry. It's not to deceive. It's not to be crafty. It's not to mislead. It's to reveal. It's to unveil. No pun intended. It's to expose, to make aware those who don't know. But he says, by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to everyone's conscience. The manifestation of the truth is the manner of the ministry. We present the truth in what we say. We present the truth in what we do. You won't find a gospel preacher who says one thing and does another. Well, actually, you will find many gospel preachers who do that. You're not supposed to find a gospel preacher who says one thing and does another. If they say it, they should live it. And if they preach it to you and it's a hard sermon for you to hear, it should have already been a hard sermon for him to hear because he had to write the thing. So he had to preach it to himself first. That's the manner of his ministry. So you have this, this Paul who's talking about, these people are running me down and attacking me to, to people who know him personally. They're not just getting a letter from some guy they never met. He established that congregation there, partially helped to establish it. And these false teachers have run him down to the point where they're choosing to believe these lies about him. So he has to back up and say, who do you think I am? Not in the arrogant, who do you think you're talking to, but rather, don't you know me at all? How have I presented myself to you in the past? We don't hide what we say. Verse 3, if our gospel is hid, if I'm hiding anything, it's only a message that is hid to them who are lost, which sounds bizarre. What, how does that work? How is the gospel hid to them that are lost? The whole point is they're lost, so they need the gospel. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying the gospel is clear and easy to be found, but if you don't want to find it, if you hide your head in the sand, then I'm going to preach the gospel. And if you want to bury your head in the sand and not listen and not see and not know, that's on you. But I'm not hiding it from you. If it is hid, it's hid to those who don't want to be saved. It's hid to those who've chosen to be lost and who don't want to be found. Which leads him to verse 4. Those ones who have hidden themselves from the gospel, how have they done so? Well, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Mine says the God of this world. Everybody have God of this world? Who is the God of this world? Seems like a disrespectful title to give him, but of course it's a little g, but it just means the... The supreme ruler of the souls of this world. The souls of this world that belong to Christ are not souls of this world. They're souls of heaven. They belong to a kingdom of heaven. My kingdom is not of this world, he says. It's not going to become part of this world. It will always be separate from this world. It's a kingdom of heaven. So the souls of this world don't belong to Christ. Therefore, who do they belong to? He is the God of this world. He is the one who gets their devotion. He's the one who gets their sacrifices. He's the one who gets their worship. But the difference between God and the God of this world, God deserves devotion, God deserves worship, God deserves sacrifices. But God will tell you who He is, He will tell you what the blessings are, 
And He will give you every good reason to provide Him those sacrifices and offerings to get those blessings. The devil will lie to you and deceive you and stay in the shadows and he will act as if he's not even there. He, he doesn't even want you to know you're worshiping him. As long as you're offering a sacrifice to yourself or to some selfish interest or to someone else, he claims that worship without you even needing to know his name's on the dotted line. That's the way the devil writes a contract. But God is open and obvious to all. Not the devil. He's secretive. He is the God of this world. He has blinded the minds of them that believe not. That doesn't mean he has uh, power to undo your free will and to force you to be blinded when you don't want to be blinded. Rather, if you don't want to see the truth, the devil will offer you a thousand and one alternatives. If you don't want to know the truth, then he will say, instead, look at this. See how much more convenient it would be to believe this. See how much easier it would be to follow this. See how much less work it would be to do this. And then you follow this, you listen to that, you do that, and you just follow yourself down a path that leads to damnation, and the devil's leading you like the Pied Piper, and you don't even see him because he's in the shadows. He has blinded you by handing you the blindfold. And he said, wouldn't this be better than doing what Jesus says? And a foolish person would say, yep, it sure would be, and they'll tie that sucker right up to their eyes, and they'll walk right off the cliff. The devil blinded them because they blinded themselves. And whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, the image of God, should shine unto them. Just to tie it all back together with the previous point, you know, the radiant glory of Jesus Christ, that light which can shine on you, but only if your eyes are open. Like you could not miss the radiance of Moses' glory because that was a physical, literal thing in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, it's a metaphor. It's illustrative. It's poetic. It's, it's, this thing is not an actual flashlight. If we turned the lights off, you wouldn't see glowing coming out of this pages. But spiritually speaking, metaphorically speaking, this book is radiating with the glory of God. But if you don't want to see it, it might as well be a dead book. It isn't, but it might as well be. So the glorious gospel of Christ and the image of, of God and the light of Jesus Christ is there for the taking, there for the seeing. But the devil's also offering you a blindfold. And truth be told, it's a very easy blindfold. It's a very convenient blindfold. Yes, sir. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 like, well, uh, we said I said a minute ago, the devil's not going to undo your free will to put the blindfold on you, right? But in the same way, God's not going to undo your free will to take the blindfold off. At the end of the day, you're making your own choices. God has created you, and God has given you the opportunity to choose Him. And the devil will lie to you to get you to choose Him, but God will tell you the truth to get you to choose Him. But at the end of the day, if you want to believe a lie, then God is going to let you believe a lie. God will give you up to live however you want to live, if that's how you want to live. Verse 5. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. Really, in a lot of ways, Paul's been building to this point. He first talked about the ministry that he received from God earlier in the book. He talked about the principles of being a good preacher earlier in this chapter. Meanwhile, the devil has his preachers, whether they know they're working for him or not, and some do and some don't. They're blinding the eyes of the world in the way they do. And what is Paul doing to combat this? Is he, is he going after them? Is he attacking them? Is he seeking them out and hunting them down? No, that's old Paul. Old Paul was a hunter of men. 
Paul's not doing that now. Paul is preaching Jesus. He will just preach the message. He's not preaching himself like they are. He's preaching Christ. Remember how the previous chapter began. Do I need to give you a letter of commendation like those guys do? Do I need to give you my credentials? Do you need to see my resume? Paul's resume is very impressive. But he always kept it in his back pocket. These guys, these other guys, these false teachers, they're wearing it on their t-shirts. They printed it right there for all to see. Look how special I am in seven easy points. That's not Paul. He's much more mild and meek like his master. So his enemies are accusing him of being this false guy who's propped himself up and made himself something he's not. That's a very arrogant accusation. They're accusing him of arrogance. But nothing about his character is ever arrogant. Verse 6. For God, who commanded, even when he was a a persecutor, you you couldn't say he was acting out of arrogance. He believed he was right, which you can argue is a form of it. But he thought what he was doing was for the good of God and the Old Covenant, and Moses, and everyone that they thought they were blaspheming against Moses and against God, the God of Abraham. So his actions in persecuting Stephen and other Christians and everything was done, again, still in the service of another, not arrogance. Now, that very ferocious attitude has just been pivoted toward the righteous, and he is still going crazy, but it's still not about him. It's just now he has the right thing that's about that he's preaching. It's never been about Paul. It's never been his character. He's not been an arrogant person. He's meek by nature, humble by nature. Verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, that's Genesis 1, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I love how Paul does this. Paul will sometimes, he'll pick a word and he'll just, he'll just it's like he's writing and he'll say, all right, I'm going to do, watch this. Or the Holy Spirit's telling them, watch this. We're going we're gonna to take this one word. We're going to do a whole chapter over this one word. So he'll take this word light, and he has used light now spreading over two chapters. The glory of one light versus the other light. The glory of Moses versus Christ. He's, been, he's all about radiance and light and things. So he's still on that theme. And look what he does within verse 6. God, on the theme of light, God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Now you might think, all right, that's just a nice little poetic way to describe God. He was in Genesis 1, in the beginning, let there be light. But that's not his point. That same God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has now shined in our hearts. What were our hearts before we had Christ? Dark. He shined the light into the dark hearts of us. To give the light, what light? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He just took all of his previous points and wrapped them in this one little bow right here. So you have light, you have glory, you have face, the radiance that Moses had or that we can now go to. It's all right here in this one verse. God commanded a light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts, which are unveiled, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We can see God face to face through Christ and know that we have the truth. That's all right there in verse 6. Verse 7. But we... That's the apostles, because he's defending himself and his apostles with him. We have the treasure of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, previous verse, which now has been put into very thin paper and bound in leather, conveniently for us and sold in bookstores so that we can have it and we can read it at 2 o'clock in the morning without having to write a letter and wait six months to get a letter back. No, we can just go immediately to the book. That's the treasure right here. We have the treasure bound in leather. Paul did not have the treasure bound in leather. Paul had the treasure in earthen vessels, in himself. He was a walking Bible. Now, I've known some preachers who literally could quote the book. You name a chapter, you name a verse, he's telling you what it says in the King James and the ASV. 
I knew a, a preacher, a teacher, who would sometimes, in, in preaching school, he'd be reading to us in class, and he would have his Bible. You can't tell because mine has no text. But he would have his Bible upside down out of meekness to make it seem like he was reading, but he was actually just quoting it, but he didn't want to act like he was showing off. But he had forgotten he had his Bible upside down, and he was just quoting. Like he would just randomly start tossing out verses. He was a, as close as you could get to a walking Bible. But he was not infallible. He, he would miss something every now and then. But Paul, when he had to get up to preach, when he had to speak and tell the word of God, every word that came out of his mouth was scripture. When he had to put pen to paper and write 2 Corinthians or Galatians or Romans, every word he wrote down was scripture because it came not from him, but from the God who inspired him. He had it in him, put into him by God, and it came out of him through God. So we, the apostles, have the treasure of God's word in our bodies, an earthen vessel. What, what does your Bible say there? Mine says earthen vessel. Jar of clay. A jar of clay. But that's the physical body, is what he's talking about in the context. We have it contained within ourselves, so that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We have this treasure put into us. What, what is a jar of clay that has um, diamonds inside? A very cheap container that has diamonds inside. I'm just a cheap container, Paul says. Within me is what matters. I have this treasure in me so the excellency of the power could be credited to God. You would thank God for the message, not me. I'm just the hand on the paper that God has inspired. Verse 8. And in so preaching, I come under attack. Not God. God is on his throne. God is radiating majesty and God is exemplified in holiness. But I'm down here working on behalf of God, Paul says. I'm God's proxy. I'm God's ambassador. I'm God's apostle. When you persecute me, you're persecuting Christ, but he's not feeling it. I'm the one feeling it. I'm the one getting lashed. I'm the one getting stoned. I'm the one getting threatened. I'm the one being murdered. Me, I'm the one under persecution. We are troubled on every side, but not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are troubled on every side, everywhere. We turn as an enemy trying to destroy us, but not distressed, literally not discouraged. But that's a pretty discouraging scenario. Where everywhere you turn, you don't find a friend, you find an enemy. You feel alone, you want to shrivel. Paul says, I'm not going to get discouraged. We are perplexed. Literally, the word means trapped in a hole, no way out. To be in a loss for what to do. Anything you want to put it like that. Perplexed, but not in despair. Not throwing up our hands, saying it is hopeless. Because it's never hopeless with God. He's the, he's the personification of hope. Verse 9. We are persecuted, not just disliked, not even just hated, but attacked, gone after, chased down, threatened. Literally, the word means pressure. Like if you want to make it physical, someone is physically trying to push you out of a room. You're not supposed to be here. Get out of here. But just the very threat of you being shoved out of the way, the very feeling of people uh, crowding your personal space, that's the meaning, the root meaning of the word persecuted. It's been applied and it's been adapted to, to actually talk about you know physical violence. But the word is at its root just the threat of violence. That's terrorism, the threat of danger, the threat of violence. We are persecuted but not forsaken. Everybody is against me, but God is not against me. Everybody around me is attacking me, but God is above me, and God is still there. So persecuted, but not forsaken. Listen, the devil is very good at torturing people 
You think the devil has scruples? You think the devil is worried about hurting you physically? But understand this, hurting you physically is not the end. That's not the, the end. That's the means to the end. The end for the devil is your damnation. And if he has to torture you to get you to renounce Christ, that's what he will do. If he has to just lure you with a carrot, fine. But if he has to get the stick, he'll get the stick. The devil has no qualms about persecuting you. But your way through that is knowing no matter how much he's coming after you, Christ is still with you. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down. He's been pressed down, but not overcome. He's been confused, but not lost. He's been victimized, but not abandoned. He's been disheartened, cast down, left for dead, but not destroyed. Somebody read 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. And while you're turning there, listen, the word destroyed means completely pulverized, crushed into a million little pieces, no coming back from. I've, I've not been put down so much that I'm not getting back up. That's not going to happen, he says, no matter what his enemies may do. Because he has this to look forward to. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up to me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me that day. And not only to me, but unto all them also that will disappear. Uh, this is a man who's about to go to presumably the guillotine or something. The French invented that, but some, some equivalent of getting his head chopped off. He's about to lose his head. He's about to die. Okay? You would think, well, that's death. That's the end. That's You're not coming back from that. But Paul, as he'll say in just a little bit, or he'll actually say in the next verse, even death is not the end for me, because I know that God can raise the dead. And if you have that kind of an attitude, even death itself is not an end. Death itself is a victory. And that's how Paul looked at it. Verse 10. In all of this, all of our persecution, all of our hardships, all of our being cast down, downtrodden, all these terrible things we feel but are not true because God is with us, and all of that, we are always, my Bible says, bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. What does your Bible say at the beginning of verse 10? In the body. Carrying. Carrying. You have something like that? Carrying. We feel, as we go through our ministry, being persecuted all the time, we feel as if we are carrying the dying body of Jesus the dead body of Jesus, that we are carrying the Lord and Him on His cross on our backs. To what end? That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Somebody read Acts 7.24. Acts 7, verse 24. I don't think that's right. I wrote that. No, it's not. It is. Go ahead. Acts 7.24. No, not Acts. I was wrong. Romans 7.24. I knew that was wrong. Romans 7.24. Oh, again, I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? This is Paul. I don't. I don't. I'm going to teach Romans in a couple of, uh, well, in a few months. I'll get to Romans after this. But so I don't want to go too deep into what Romans seven is. Very, very deep uh, chapter in a very deep book. But you have this moment here of whatever the opposite of euphoria is, of just absolute anguish, and he cries out in the role of this condemned man who needs salvation, who needs what Romans 8 talks about. There is no condemnation. Well, he doesn't have that in Romans 7. And he cries out on behalf of all who are condemned, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? It was always in the back of Paul's mind what it meant to be a sinner. It was to be guilty of the death of Jesus Christ. This was a man, Paul, Saul, in the time, 
who oversaw and who was there for and who was signing off on and happy to see Stephen be murdered. So excited was he by that murder that he got permission to go do that all over the place. Let me find more Stephens in more places from here to Damascus, which is where the road ended for him, to find more Christians that we can stone for doing the same thing Stephen was doing. He was giddy about murder on his mind at all times. 2 Corinthians 4.10 is not the body of Stephen. It's not the body of anybody else he might have killed over along the way. He was always cognizant that he was guilty of the death of Jesus Christ. And then, in the same breath, before he even inhales to take a thought, he is thankful that the death of Jesus Christ, that his sins caused, can be the cause of his salvation. I'm always carrying the body of the dead Jesus so that when Jesus rises, I'm carrying him, I rise with him. Because I'm strapped to Jesus. So I'm guilty of his death. I'm, I'm tethered to Jesus. And I'm there when he dies. And I'm there when he goes in the grave. That's my fault. But he goes in the grave three days later. He rises. And I rise with him. And that's a picture of salvation. That's Romans 6. So that when Jesus comes up, that can be in me too. My body is guilty of his death. And my body gets to rejoice in his life. Verse 11. For we which live, this in the context... In the resurrection, now that we're saved, not just breathing oxygen, but saved, we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. Now, what does it mean, Paul, in verse 10, that you're carrying the body of Jesus as a minister? Not as a sinner, but as a minister. It means I'm always prepared to die for the cause like Jesus died for the cause. We live and we're always ready to be delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. Alright? What do you mean, verse 10, that when Jesus has life, you can have life in your body too. In your ministry. Not sinner, saint, not salvation, but just in your ministry. What do you mean? It means that the life of Jesus can be made manifest in our mortal flesh. In other words, I have five minutes. In other words, if you kill me in preaching Jesus, if Jesus so desires, he can wake me up to keep on preaching. And if he wants me just to stay dead, I'll stay dead. Be the way I belong to him. And eventually, he'll come back and I will rise up. And I will live forevermore. So my life is in His hands. Whether that means dying for Him or living for Him, I will preach for Him. Verse 12. So then death works in us. This is my ministry even if it kills me, but life in you. I will die so that you can live. That's just that's not hyperbole. That's not Paul being dramatic. That's not Paul trying to put himself in the place of Christ. That's him saying, my ministry puts me in danger. But my ministry caused you Corinthians to be saved. And if that's what it takes for you to have life, spiritual, for me to have physical death, so be it. Verse 13. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, therefore have I spoken. That's Psalm 116, 110, or Psalm 116, verse 10. I believe, therefore I have spoken. We also believe, and therefore speak. I, I, I didn't do that justice. A great bit of writing here. Paul takes this Old Testament reference and puts a New Testament spin on it. He takes this simple, beautiful, little poetic statement in the Psalms. I believe, therefore I have spoken. And he builds on it. And he says, we also believe and therefore speak. Nothing changes. That's Old Testament. Look at me using the Old Testament in its proper way, you Judaizers. Here's what you do. You take that idea of these people who belong to God. We believe in God, therefore we speak God. Well, I also believe in God, so I also will speak God. His critics wanted to say, how dare you shut down the Old Testament? Paul says, I'm using it as it should be used. That's the difference. He saw Jesus. He believes Jesus. He speaks Jesus. And if you don't speak it, then I don't care what you say, you don't believe it. 
Verse 14. And I preach, knowing it may kill me, so be it I will speak, knowing it may kill me, knowing, verse 14, that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. What do you think being killed would do to Paul? Well, Acts 14, 19, and 20. I think we have time. Everyone go there. Look at Acts 14, 19, and 20. And I'll tell you, when you go there, some people are going to say, well, I don't, I don't know if it actually says that. It could, it could say something else. I will disagree with you, even though you don't even know what I'm talking about yet. Acts 14, 19, and 20. No, not Acts 19? Dead gummit. Where does Paul get stoned at? I've lost my... Is it 19? Yeah, sorry. Uh, well, this is embarrassing. Is it 14? My bad. I, 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 read, I must have been in a different chapter. Yeah, you're right. Sorry, thank you. Acts 14, verse 19. And there came there are certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people, and having stared us, it just nonchalantly said, and having stoned Paul, they drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood around him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. So you might read that and think, well, it says they supposed he was dead, so he wasn't really dead. In this book we're studying, Second Corinthians, he's going to allude to that event. I think, I, I think it's pretty clear he's alluding to that event. And he makes it pretty clear he died. Okay, They thought, in that sense, when, typically when you kill a man, they don't tend to shrug it off. I mean, it happened with Jesus, but that's a one-time thing, you'd think. Well, actually, it happened with Lazarus too, but Jesus was there. So you'd think it's no big deal. So we have now stoned Paul. They toss it out like it's like it's, they ordered a cheeseburger, the way they say in verse 19. They, the Jews and the people of Iconium, pers- the, and Antioch and Iconium, they persuaded the people that Paul was this rabble-rouser who needed to be put down. How the turntables have, because that's what they said about Stephen, and that's why they killed Stephen. Now they're saying it about Paul, this guy doesn't deserve to live, he's a... He's, saying terrible things about Moses, so let's all stone him and then just toss it out there. In the middle of the book, he's like the main character now and then just dies. And that's not the end of the chapter. That's not some big grand moment. They don't have a big thing. It's just to say, and they stoned him and left him. And then when everyone gathered around him, he gets up. He's like, all right, where to next? Like, my dude, you just got stoned. Giant rocks were hurled at you until you were battered and bloodied and left dead. Not for dead. That's just what they thought. You were left dead. Your soul gone from your body. It came back to God and God said, no, not done. And he threw him back down to earth. Back in his body and he gets up. Still battered. Still bloody. Still bruised. Probably still broken. And he says, alright, where to next? Off we go to preach. Because that's why I'm here. Even if you kill me, I will just get up. That's Paul. I can tell you, many preachers would say, if I die, that's fine. I'm willing to die. But I don't want to do it twice. But Paul's like, I don't care if it takes a thousand deaths. I'm going to keep preaching this message. We'll stop there. Verse 15, chapter 4, where we'll pick it up. Thanks, everybody.